If you turn tonight to the book of 1 Corinthians to chapter 5 as we begin chapter 5, um, I want to do a disclaimer before we get started tonight. I'm looking around to see if we have any children in the sanctuary. Uh, tonight is a non-children evening. Uh, if I'm missing someone and they're in here and they're under age 14, 15, I would request right now uh, that they leave the sanctuary and go to their appropriate age classes, high school or junior high, uh, because we're going to be tackling some subject matter tonight um, that is probably not appropriate for younger ears. If you are comfortable as a parent with your child hearing about human sexuality, we are going to be discussing some of that tonight. And so I want to make it very clear that the subject matter will be PG-13. And so uh, please, if that is not something that you want your children to hear tonight, have them go to either the junior high or high school or to children's ministry. Thank you, because it is important to me that I don't say something that you would find uh, inappropriate for your children, because it's your job to actually raise them in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Amen? Although scripture speaks about issues, uh, honestly, people ask me sometimes, what would the Bible be rated if it was turned into a movie? I would have to tell you it'd be X. It would actually be rated X. There there are certain parts of the scripture uh, that if you turned it into a movie the way Hollywood does it today, it would certainly get an X rating. And so it's not that we're being inappropriate regarding scripture, but the subject matter is nonetheless an adult subject matter. As we turn our attention now to chapter 5, we're about to enter a section where the Apostle Paul is going to deal with sin. And in dealing with sin, he begins with an issue uh, that affects us tremendously in our day and time. And in fact, it may be the number one problem that we face as a society. And certainly as Christians, we have not escaped sexual immorality. The problem that the church has is the church in some degree and in some circles and in some cases has actually adopted the world's understanding of human sexuality and has treated the sexual relationship between a man and a woman just like the world does and that it is nothing more than recreation. That it is actually given so that we can do whatever we want with it. And your Bible says something quite different. And in fact, your Bible addresses the issue of human sexuality very straightforwardly, and we will address that tonight. I will tell you beforehand, I'm probably going to offend some in the room tonight. Uh, I will tell you beforehand that I am in no way, shape, or form attempting to be a legalist, but I am a biblicist, and I believe what God's word says we are obligated to do and live. And so, as I speak to these issues, you may disagree with me. I just simply ask you to take your disagreement to the Lord and to seek and to find if the Scripture does not agree exactly with what I say, because I believe you will find that it does. The issue of sin in the church has been with us since the beginning. And so the Apostle Paul, picking out a single incident here, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uses something that I think and I would hope that most of us would say, well, that's a no-brainer. That's clearly sin. Why would you allow that to happen in your church? 
And while I say that, can I tell you that there's an awful lot of things that go on in the church and Christians know about it and they know it's wrong and they do it anyway. One of the problems that we have in our world is that we have lost our ability to speak into our culture because we will not stand on issues that are clearly defined in Scripture. That we have one opinion when it comes to our own selves, and we have another opinion when it comes to someone else or something that we find offensive. In other words, the church often, especially in the area of human sexuality, is excruciatingly hypocritical. And because of that, we've lost our voice in our culture. The reason that people don't want to hear what the church thinks and what God's word says about the issue of homosexuality is because they equate it to the divorce rate. They equate it to the number of Christians, professing Christians, that have premarital sex. They then go on to equate it to the number of Christians who then have extramarital sex. They then go on to say, well, Christians watch R-rated pornographic movies. And notice what I said, because there are R-rated pornographic movies. They don't have to be X. That in fact, it is Christians that often pick up graphic romance novels and read them, becoming sexually enticed. And yet we call them romance novels. I told you it was going to be straightforward. We need to have God's opinion on human sexuality. And if we don't, we have no business attempting to be the moral voice of our culture. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the power of your word to transform and change. And we ask tonight that you would take this very difficult passage as you would help us to understand it for the intended purpose, the intentioned purpose for which you authored Scripture, for instruction, correction, and righteousness. And so, Lord, we give you this time and pray now that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And remember that he's told us, began last time, ended chapter 4. As the body of Christ, we need to be humble. And part of being humble is recognizing that we ourselves are still deeply in need of the grace and the mercy of God. Amen? As we sit here tonight as a bunch of people who are failed human beings, who have a plethora of problems, that were it not for God's grace, none of us would see heaven. And so in that humbleness, Paul says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's speaking to the church about the church. Sexual immorality in the church, and now he defines it. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles... That so perverse was it that even the Gentiles would have said, oh, even we don't do that. That a man has his father's wife. And that says exactly what you think it says. Now notice 
how Paul perceives their response to understanding this. And you were puffed up. In other words, not only have you accepted it, you're actually indignant about someone even addressing it. You're puffed up. You have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Sexual sin in the church is a serious issue. For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, I've already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. You know, there are people that wander around, and when you call out sin, the first thing they do is turn to Matthew chapter 7 and go, don't judge me, bro. Right here it says, don't judge me. Be careful how you interpret that passage because it does not say don't judge. It simply says make sure that if you judge, you judge righteously. That you do so with a righteous judgment for in the manner in which you judge others, you yourself will be judged. And so if you judge unrighteously, you can count on God letting you know about it. If you judge incorrectly or immorally, you can count on God letting you know about it. It does not, Jesus does not, the Bible does not say that the church is not to judge itself. And in fact, we have been commanded by God to actually take a look at the fruit that flows from other people's accounts to see if the fruit is good or bad. And so the church has an obligation as Paul is putting forth here, to look at itself and say, if there's problems, we need to deal with it. Because if we don't deal with it, then the world says, why would I listen to them? Because they do exactly the same thing that people without Jesus do. This is a serious issue, church. He continues... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound serious to you? Sounds really serious to me. It does not sound like, well, you know, they're just fornicating. You know, after all, they're just teenagers. They really love each other. They're in a committed relationship. They plan on getting married someday. Well, how will you know if you're sexually compatible unless you try it out? Can I tell you I've heard every last one of those things as I sit down and counsel with people. Well, how do I really know if we're sexually compatible if we never have sex? It may not be any good. Let me give you a little help. If there's a man and a woman and they have sex, it will be good. God created it. He knew what he was doing. He didn't mess up. And you don't need to try before you buy. 
If you do not have a ring, there is to be no thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know if you stick some poison in those cookies, the whole batch are going to be poisonous? And therefore, purge out the old leaven. The old leaven is a picture of your old life before you came to Christ. Before you were washed, before you were cleansed, before you were redeemed, before you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your life was a mess without Jesus. But you've been saved so that you can be set free from the bondage of sin and death. The Apostle Paul actually addresses it so harshly. He says, what then? Should we go on sinning that grace might abound? He answers his own question and says, heavens, no. You, you see, we have to look at sin the way God looks at sin. And there are some that right now are probably squirming a little, oh man, what a legalist. No, I am exactly what I said. I'm a biblicist. I actually believe that God's word says what it says, it means what it says, and we're supposed to do what it says. It's not up to us to make up our own mores. It is not up to us to define what God has already defined. It is up to us to do what God has said. That you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We're unleavened now. By the blood of Christ, we are actually an unleavened lump. Because Christ is our Passover. He took death upon himself. He defeated sin so that we no longer have to live under it any longer. We've been freed from it. We no longer are governed by our flesh. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, not hating on the fact that we now have been set free from things that we used to do readily, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and notice how it ends, truth. You see, apart from the truth of God's word, you are effectively an existential humanist. You just make it up as you go. You believe what you believe because you believe it, and that is exactly the way the world treats human sexuality. Being a child of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, as I grew up in I grew up in the free love era. I grew up in the Woodstock era. I grew up in the well, can't we all just get along? I can get by with a little help with my friends. Tina Turner wisely said, What's love got to do with it? It's just a secondhand emotion. That's the way the world views human sexuality. It's not about love, it's about attraction. 
It's about hormones. It's about a couple of chemicals coursing through your veins. It's about our evolutionary destiny to desire to please ourselves. From God's perspective, that is absolutely not what human sexuality is for. God both defined it and confined it. He said, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and a woman leave her home and the two shall be cleaved together as one flesh. Notice what God's view is. One man, one woman glued together for life. Not she's hot, I'd like to have that. Or man, is he cute, I wonder how he is in bed. Not if I like him, then maybe we'll have a relationship. But I really want to know if I like him a lot. Do you understand what I'm saying, family? Because what you understand about this is what you will teach the next generation. And the problem is the church has failed at teaching the truth to our children, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. That's why we're in the mess we're in. Because if the church won't stand up and say, this is God's plan for human sexuality, then we fall into the enemy's plan, and then our children do what the world does, which is they treat sex the same as they treat going to the movies. Told you I was going to speak frankly. Paul outright here condemns sexual immorality in the church. And so that we get the right perspective here, let me help you understand what your Bible says about sexual immorality. There is exactly one word in four forms that's used to define sexual immorality, impropriety, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, every single kind of sexual sin is actually defined in Scripture by exactly one word in its four forms. One verb form and four na- or three nouns. So the noun form, immorality, poronea, is as if someone were to take this up as their lifestyle. The verb form is attached to other nouns, and thereby it becomes other words. So if you use porneo, and you use a man and a man, guess what it becomes? Homosexuality. If you use porneo, and you use a man, and a woman whom he's not married to, before either of them's married, it's called fornication. If you use porneo, and it happens to be a man who's married and a woman who's married, but they're not married to each other, guess what it becomes? Adultery in English. If that person is a porne, they would be a prostitute or a harlot. And depending on whether you use it with a man or a woman, it becomes a male prostitute or a female prostitute or a harlot. And then the final word, 
an important one for us because our word pornography comes from the Greek word pornos, which is the noun which means immoral persons or prostitutes or things of immorality. So when Scripture says immorality, it's actually defined by the nouns that surround it. And thereby what Paul is talking about when he says sexual immorality is every last kind of immorality there is. He uses a specific example of that in that a man actually has sex with his father's wife. But he's talking about sexual immorality of all kinds. And it is used that way throughout Scripture. Monumental evidence, and we could go through 50 Scriptures that use this very term. But the variables here are endless. And the reason they're endless is because God confines the sexual relationship inside of marriage, refines it for the purpose of pleasure for the couple and procreation, and he does so only within the confines of marriage. So it is sexual immorality for two young people to be in the back seat of the car groping one another. It is sexual immorality for you to view pornography. It is sexual immorality for you to read juicy romance novels with sexual parts in it that cause you to become aroused. It is sexual immorality to pleasure yourself while thinking about someone that you're not married to. It is sexual immorality to have any kind of sex outside of marriage. Am I clear? I hope I am. Because here's what happens. If you don't believe that definition, then everything is okay. Did you hear what I said? If that is not your definition, then you become the definer and not God. And now all of a sudden, well, you know, if my kids are trying to figure out who they're supposed to marry, you know, what's the harm if they actually have some sex before they get married? Isn't that what everybody does? Your Bible paints the picture that all sex outside of marriage is wrong. That's the view the church is supposed to have. And if we had that view, and we affected the world with that view, our country with that view, it would affect things like abortion. Because married couples generally don't abort their children. But people who are not committed in a married relationship do because that child is going to be a financial burden or a psychological burden. Because when you take sex and you pull it outside of the marriage, you take it from the commitment that God intended and you make it recreational, you do away with the very soul of what God intended which was two people that will love each other and go through everything for the rest of their days. You see, from God's perspective, we don't have the right to redefine it because he has clearly defined it. Colossians 3, 5 says, consider the members of your body to be dead to immorality, 
impurity passion, which amounts to, Paul actually says, idolatry. Anyone here think that perhaps the United States of America has an idolatrous relationship with sex? I do. It has become a God in and unto itself. Don't believe that, drive down PCH. Just don't look very long. Kind of were watching television last week. We were watching, I think, a Dodger game. The commercials, did I just see what I just saw, sweetheart? Yes, you did. I saw an unmarried couple, an unmarried young couple, standing at a cash register. This is a commercial on television touting the wonderful condoms that they were about to buy. And then the girl politely says, give us three boxes. I think our country has a problem. Because if you tell some young people those types of things and then pull the moral restraint off of it and the commitment of marriage off of it, what do you think they're going to do? And then add to that the way that we dress and the environment that we are in, we are set up family for a moral catastrophe in our nation if we have not already gotten there. God's word is clear. No ring, no thing. It's all sin in God's eyes. And so Paul addresses, he says, look, this sin was in the church. He's not talking about in some porn shop. He's not talking about some sleazy hotel. He's talking about the church. And the odd thing is, is even the Greeks and the Romans didn't do this thing, but somehow it was okay in the church. The church leadership said, well, you know, the guy's a big giver. I mean, after all, we wouldn't have a building without him. Have you ever talked to him? He's a really nice guy. We can't make excuses for sin. You need to deal decisively with it. We're not told how this comes about. We're not told whether it's his actual mother or his stepmother. It doesn't really matter, I don't believe. It's just plain wrong. But somehow the church had accepted it. And we can't accept openly sinful behavior. Now, in saying this, this is not that the church is supposed to be going around, you know, with their sin sniffers. And I was like, I think they sinned. Let's follow them to see where they go. It's not that at all. This was so clear that the whole church knew about it, is what Paul is saying. And when the church knows about things like this, we must stop and say, Lord, we're shaming your name. Our hypocrisy in allowing these things is causing the world to think evil of you, God. And that's the problem. 
Because now they won't repent of their own sin. Now they think their sin's okay. They say, well, compared to the dude that's, you know, having his mom, I mean, what's wrong with my relationship with my girlfriend? And we could modernize this in a lot of ways. And for sake of not being inappropriate, I won't. But you can think of probably a bunch of ways that we could put this into our modern context. We have to stand on these issues. I've sat, I sat with a 13-year-old girl who was five months pregnant one time at the camp. 13. And you know what prompted her to have sex in the first place? Because her mom made her go get an HPV vaccination. So she just assumed that if she was getting a vaccination to keep her from getting some STD, that it must be appropriate to be sexually active at 12 we need to rethink some of the things that we're doing, family. I sat with Jack Hibbs one time, and we went through the current sex education program for the schools in the state of California. I can't even repeat to you some of the exercises that are in that program that's designed for 10 to 12-year-olds. What do you think happens when we expose 10 to 12-year-olds to that kind of carnal knowledge you think maybe that's going to pique their interest a little bit I think that stuff belongs in the home not in the school and I am in no way shape or form a prude but God's word says when we stimulate people to sexual immorality we have a part in it we need to rethink these things if you're here tonight and you have children in school opt out of the sex ed you tell them about the birds and the bees You tell them about Abraham and Sarah, how they waited until there were a (laughs) hundred. Amen? That should do it. We got to have God's view on this. We can't be saying one thing and doing another. We can't claim to have the moral high ground and then take the moral low ground. God help us. We, we cannot be proud of putrescence, rot, filth. It's what happened here. It's like whatever, what, whatever reason they had for being proud, they were proud. Whatever reason they had for turning a blind eye, they turned a blind eye. We can't be doing that. It's time that the church took the moral high ground and did it consistently. And that means confronting our own children. That means standing up against our governing officials who want to cram this garbage down our throats. It means getting on the phone. It means writing our state senators and telling them, you know what? We don't believe that we should be forced to not talk about homosexuality because God views it as wrong. All love is not love. Some love is just lust. But when the church goes, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, 
Look, your Bible is an offender of all. It's an equal opportunity offender. It picks on everyone's sin, and it does so with great equality. Have that viewpoint. Do it in love. Do it caringly and kind. I'm speaking to the church, and so I can speak to you as your pastor. But I'm asking you as a friend to try and help stop this tide. I'm tired of talking to little girls who should not be pregnant. I'm tired of looking at young men that have no idea how they're going to pay for the the wealth and and the care of that child because they're 15. When they ought to be figuring out how to ride a skateboard properly, they've been doing something else. Because we won't stop and say enough. Quit watching the TV programs. Turn off the movies. Don't spend your money on that garbage. If what we believe is true, half of this country is actually supposed to be Christians. Actually more than that. You take 150 million people and we stop going to these movies that are producing this filth, they're going to go broke. It's that simple. Stand for righteousness. Otherwise, you're doing what they did. We have a battle cry in the media that cries out for political correctness and tolerance for absolutely everything all day, every day. And we cannot tolerate everything all day, every day. We can't. It's killing your children. It's destroying their minds. What do you think happens to a child that's been having sex since they were 13 years old? Do you think they're going to have any satisfaction when they get into a married relationship? They are not. They have in the back of their mind every last person that they've ever been intimate with, and it is all locked inside their head. Make no mistake about it. God cares about your children. God cares about you. And so he says, don't do it. And so Paul says, finally, beginning to wrap this up, to judge correctly. It's not don't judge me, bro. It's make sure you have the right kind of judgment. Can I tell you the best way to get the right kind of judgment? Do what the Word says. You want to be right 100% of the time? Just do what the Bible says. It's not that hard. See, but we want to kind of, well, you know, there's been some recent development in the scientific world that says, you know, there's a chemical. I actually had a guy come to me. He says, you know, well, my body just produces lots of, lots of hormones, and, and I just can't help myself. I said, yeah, you and every 12-year-old. <laughs> well, the only way that I get any relief, I'm going to give you some relief right here. Because that's somebody else's wife. That's somebody's daughter. And you don't have the right to do what you're doing. That's the, that's the attitude the church ought to have. Every time I drive by one of these billboards that are on our streets and I see some young girl up on that billboard advertising some 
vulgar club like we have down the street. It makes my heart ache. That is somebody's precious child. That will be somebody's wife. That is immorality. That is not entertainment. Let me call it what it is. That is not a gentleman's club. That is the pit of hell on earth. And we should not like it. We have to judge correctly. Call it what it is. Paul's basically saying, look, I gave it some thought, and here's what the Lord told me. The Bible says this, the Holy Spirit says this, my prayer life says this, and I came up to this conclusion, and here's what you ought to do about it. Stop it. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't like he had to, you know, go through some kind of dense mental gymnastics to come to that conclusion. It was very clear. And so he basically says, look, If I were to turn to Matthew 18, I can give you the steps on how to do it. First, go to the person. If they don't receive you, take another person. If they don't receive you still, you can't establish the facts. Take it to the church. And if they will not hear you, then turn them away from the church so that the church isn't polluted. He just simply echoes exactly what Matthew 18 says. What Jesus himself said. Jesus would go on and speaking to these issues about judging at the end of chapter 7 of John's gospel, which we've already covered. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. So if God's spoken on it, that's our opinion as the church, family. That's easy for us. Now, I know I've been strong, but what I'm saying is, is when you find somebody It's not love that says, well, I understand, I did that too. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not love. It may be truth, but it's truth without love. Because love is not going to encourage somebody to do something that God's word clearly says they shouldn't do. As much as you might feel, well, it makes me feel better because I did that too. We need to lovingly tell people the truth. It's like, honey, because I love you, I I know you think you love this boy. But if you really want to know if he loves you, you tell him no. And if he pushes it any further, you come tell me and I'll tell him no. His dad can come collect his teeth later. I'm not suggesting you should be violent. I give a disclaimer right now about what I just said. (laughs) But we get all up in here about other things, don't we? I mean, I've talked, uh, Connie, I've had some discussions about the Dodgers playing right now. We're ready to kill something. (laughs) But when it comes to our children, we're like, oh, you know, well, you know, they're just going to be kids. Can you imagine if the church was excited about purity as we are about our sports teams? Paint your face with Jesus and let somebody see him. You see, the correct kind of discipline is listed here, and there's really three parts to it. 
says, look, the church needs to, to see it. They need to know about it. The church needs to be unified because it's going to get around what you did. And he says, you need to go with the, the authority of Scripture, the authority of the apostleship, which we have by the word of God. And know that when you do it God's way, you're justified by what God said about it. So that's one of the great things about doing what the Bible says. <laughs> Just go, you don't have a problem with me, you've got a problem with God. Here's where it says it, right here. Tell them page 842, second paragraph. You can give them chapter and verse, go look, it's what it says. You may not like what it says, but if you're a Christian, you're supposed to do what it says. You're supposed to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. That means you're self-deceived, which is the worst kind of deception, by the way. And so God says, look, unless you want emptiness, then you need to repent. As you deal decisively with this, you're causing that person to come to terms with their sin. I can tell you it's not fun dealing with sin in church. It's awful at times. It hurts. But here's the awesome thing. When that person comes to the understanding that they've been wrong and they repent, they don't have to keep going through the fruits of disobedience anymore. Anybody in here ever run into the fruit of disobedience? It's not a fun thing, amen? You want to save everybody from that if you can, so you speak to them in truth and in love. You say, look, this, this is what God says about this issue. We don't want any yeast. We don't want any sin in our lives. And again, this is completely known unrepentant sin. This is not somebody stumbling in some little area. This is a person who will not give up their sin. This is someone who looks you in the eye and says, I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. That person requires a firm hand. You've got to be able to say to him, look, I, because I love you, I want to tell you what scripture says, and I'm going to tell you that God chastens those whom he loves, and if he does not chasten you when you're in sin, then you don't, you're just not loved by God which means maybe you're not one of his kids because he chastens his kids. It's to scare them. It's to cause them to go, wow, I never really thought of it that way. Maybe the Holy Spirit's not convicting that person because the Holy Spirit's not in that person. And you're drawing them to the understanding, wow, if I continue in this, how do I really even know that I'm one of God's kids? That's one of the effects of the Holy Spirit working in our lives as we are convicted of sin and righteousness, as we do that, we know that we are God's kids. Man, I, I thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's like, Jeffrey, my name when I'm bad, Jeffrey Scott Gill, do not do that. Yes, Lord, that's you, God, speaking to me. You change your attitude, otherwise I'm going to change it for you. you. You don't want to fall into the hands of a holy and righteous God. It's not a good thing because he knows how to get your attention. He wants to use the holy flip of the finger on your forehead, but he will use the holy baseball bat of love if you're not listening. And then he'll use the holy steamroller if necessary 
and you'll be very flat, only on one side. You see, because God chastens those whom he loves. So you're actually saving a person like this from a far worse fate, and that is to fall in the hands of a holy God. And have that God say, well, you won't listen. Let's turn up the heat. And you can see that in how God dealt with Pharaoh through Moses. It went from flies to death. Amen? What happened? It's like first they're going like this, like little flies buzzing around. It's like, man, these flies, we can deal with flies. And some frogs. And finally, it's the angel of death. God is faithful to get his point across. And incrementally, he ratchets things up. You do not want to be on the receiving end of that ratchet. So we repent. This whole picture actually is, is a part of the Passover celebration there in Exodus. Because yeast was a symbol of sin, they were commanded to sweep it out of their entire house and they would go around and check every nook and every cranny. And finally, mom would pronounce that the house was free of yeast. There's no leaven, no sin. That unleavened bread, the bread of sorrows, the bread of suffering, the bread that was prepared because they didn't have time. But the reason they didn't have time is they were being spared from the angel of death. You've been spared from the angel of death by the blood of Christ. His blood was spread on your doorpost and your lintel. You've been passed over. And so he says, let's celebrate like we're supposed to celebrate. The Passover lamb was slain for us. Paul's firm response here was to blatant sin. And I can tell you, because I have to do this, it very often is met with a hardened response from people who claim to love the Lord. We need to have God's opinion on sexual immorality. And we should not tolerate it, period. We shouldn't be engaged in it. And having said that, is God able to take care of our weaknesses? Of course he is. Is he able to the uttermost to save? Yes. Are you saved by being sinless? No. You're saved by the grace of God through faith. You're going to heaven because a price was paid for you to get there. You're not going to heaven because you never sin ever again once you're a child of God. But if we are children of God, our sinning should get less and less and less and less as we get older in the Lord. And we should become less tolerant of sin in general as we get older in the Lord. And if we are mature in the Lord, then we ought to be showing other people what it means to live as an example to others of what Jesus looks like. And Jesus wouldn't do these things. God wouldn't tolerate these things. In essence, sin and saints don't mix. 
we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. And when we do, we make God smile. And when we do, we give the world a picture of Jesus. And when we don't, we stain their view of Jesus. If we really love God, if we really love each other, then we'll deal decisively with sin. We'll say no to it ourselves personally. And as Romans 1, 31 and 2 remind us, we are not to approve of people who do such things. For that in and of itself is also sin. We're to have God's opinion of what God has declared. So let's not let sin reign in our mortal bodies any longer. Let's present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is simply our reasonable service. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Worship team's going to come back out. I want to bring some pastors forward. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you've been struggling with some area of sexuality. And I would ask that, that we'll have some ladies, I believe, up front as well. And if it's something that needs to be shared with a lady, if you ladies would please be so kind as to share that with a lady, that would be most appropriate. Maybe there's something that, that you just haven't gotten victory over and you want to have victory over it. Come and be prayed for. Be done with it. Let it go. Don't let it put you in bondage any longer. God wants you free so that you can experience the fullness of his love, his grace working out in your life. Father, thank you for the power of the cross to free us from sin. Lord, thank you that you've lifted our burdens, that you've cleansed our way. Lord, thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin, but to righteousness. Thank you that that which used to keep us in bondage, the bondage has been broken. Lord, thank you for loving us, even with our faults. And Lord, I pray no one is under condemnation tonight. But I also pray that if there's anyone here and they're in bondage to sin, Lord, they're in bondage to impurity, some form of stain. Lord, and they're ashamed of it. They want to be freed from it. Lord, you're the one who can free. And so I pray that they would come and be prayed for tonight and leave it behind. God, we love you. We thank you for your kindness, Lord, to receive us in our broken state. Lord, in humility, we cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, in love, we cry out to you as Abba, Father. And thank you that when our lives aren't quite the way they should be, you still love us anyway. But Lord, don't let sin reign in us. We want to be your pure bride ready for the trumpet sound because we know that you're coming soon. And we desperately want to be ready for the wedding. So God, we bless you. We praise you. We honor you tonight. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.